made at that point. And Joshua said, Moses, you got to stop those guys. And Moses said this. He said, are you jealous for my sake? He said, I wish that all of God's people would prophesy. And what just hit me is I was just getting up from singing that song. That's good. Am I on? Testing, yeah. Okay, um, can you uh, throw that website up there? Uh, I want to uh, give you two opportunities for development. Uh, you know, where do you go from here kind of a thing. Um, the, the first one is uh, we are now in the online education business. If you had asked me two years ago if I thought it was possible to do seminary and spiritual formation online, I would have said no. Um, I didn't like the idea. I was kind of an old fuddy-duddy. Uh, but I taught my first online spiritual formation class last semester, and I loved it. And I saw God transform people. And I had in my class a guy from Akba, Jordan. I had a preacher's wife from Ticonderoga, New York. I had a Pentecostal pastor, a church of 4,500 up in Syracuse, New York. I had a CMA pastor from Cleveland. I had a CMA pastor in Seattle. I had people from, I think we had 12 in the course. And what I saw God do last semester online was amazing. And, uh, and so this is a, it's a new 36 credit Master of Arts in Biblical Studies. And it's uh, designed for church people. It's designed for people that, you know, elders and leaders and people that say, hey, I want a seminary education. I want to go deeper in the Bible, theology, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really designed for, for people that want to expand their biblical and theological education. Uh, 36 credits, you don't have to take Hebrew, you don't have to take Greek, it's a non-language program. My faculty call it uh, an MA for dummies, which is my kind of MA, you know, uh, because uh, I did take Greek, but I, I'm not real good at it, uh, but God can still teach you a lot without knowing Hebrew and Greek. And so, um, so anyhow, uh, that's just the, the one thing. And it's completely online. You never have to come to Nyack ever. But you guys are close enough that if you sign up for this program, uh, I want you to come down and take my spiritual formation class in person uh, because we offer it in uh, either weekend formats or because uh, I'd love to have you, you know, in the class where we do all this stuff that we're doing this weekend and even more. Um, so that's one thing. The second development option is just for the ladies. Men, sorry, you're out. You don't get to be a part of this one. The Metro District of the CMA uh, has started a program called Empower, and it's for women, developing women's leaders. And I'll tell you what started it. We had a pastor's wife in our district um, commit suicide. And uh, we found out that um, she was very depressed. This was all after the fact. We found out what had been going on and our district superintendent, Bruce Terpster, came to me and he came to my wife, Wanda, and he said, uh, we have got to do something intentional to develop and release women in our district. And my wife wrote the curriculum, and uh, women come together, and they meet at Alliance Theological Seminary, but it's not our program. It's the Metro District. We just host it for them. And I teach in it. My wife teaches in it. It's a certificate program, one Saturday a month for a year. And they do pre-course reading, they do papers, they're in mentoring groups, 
and almost 200 women have now been through this Empower program in the Metro District, and uh, it is changing our district. Women are being empowered and released. It's, uh, it's incredible. We've got women now that are teaching and preaching in their churches, and uh, just amazing stuff. There's a group of women that drive from Ohio this, this, uh, this session, and uh, I think there's four or five women that come all the way from, from Mansfield, Ohio, and they're going through it, and they want to start it in the Ohio district. But ladies, I would really encourage you. I gave uh, Karis the information on that, and I think I gave Elaine uh, the website on that. And uh, it's really good if a group of women do it together. Uh, just very, very good stuff. So anyhow, that's it. Just because uh, developmental pieces, I think, for, are important for all of us. Sorry, I've got to fix this one more time. Doing battle. I'm doing battle with my earpiece. All right. How's that? Stand tight. All right. Oh, and this is the website for the Master of Arts in Biblical Studies online. Uh, so if you just go to the uh, niac.edu and then hit the seminary, you'll see uh, that program. Okay. Grieving. Grieving, grieving. All right. While they're, while they're setting that up, let me uh, again repeat what I said last night. Um, in 17 years of teaching at NIAC. I now have um, former students that are ministering on almost every continent. I, I don't think I have anybody in um, Antarctica. Um, but, uh, but I've been invited all over the world to speak in churches and ministries where my former students are. The number one talk that they asked me to give is this talk that I'm going to share with you. Um, and I, to be honest, it surprised me. But because uh, I like talking about the Holy Spirit, I like talking about healing, I like talking about, uh, but, but the testimony that I hear from my students is that what has impacted them more than anything else I've done is opening up this idea of grieving the seasons of your life. And I believe it's a talk that really opens the door for deep healing. Okay? So I want to pray. Father, as we talk about this, I believe that the enemy opposes this truth. So we now bind the enemy in Jesus' name. We silence you. Father, this may be the most important session this weekend because I I believe that every single person here have things in our life, losses we've experienced that we need to process. And I believe, Father, that uh, even today you're going to set many of us free uh, with the truth we're going to talk about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, theology of power, theology of pain. You have to have both. If you have a theology of power but no theology of pain, you will eventually give up your theology of power because uh, when you pray for someone and they're not healed, it, it causes great pain. And if you don't process that with grieving so that you can let it go and move on, what happens is you eventually say, why bother, you know? My best friend, one of my best friends, Martin Sanders, uh, we prayed for three years for his wife. She had a progressive supranuclear palsy. It's kind of dementia on steroids. In her late 50s, she contracted it. It slowly ate away the frontal lobe of her brain. And uh, they said, there's no cure. We prayed. Uh, you know, we did everything we knew to do. Fasted. We did everything. But for whatever reason, we did not experience healing this side of heaven. And uh, last year in August, um, 
Diana went to be with the Lord. Now, Martin and I, we travel over the, over the world together. And when we go, we preach on healing. We preach on, you know, freedom in Christ. And, and guess what? Even though we went through that very painful loss, he is still preaching the truth that Jesus is our healer. The only way you can do that is if you learn how to grieve your losses so that you can let them go and move on in the truth that God has for you. So this concept of grieving, uh, I think, is, is extremely important. And here's my starting premise. We must grieve the painful losses of the past seasons of our life before we can effectively embrace the present and the future. So, uh, and my argument here, as you're going to see, is that you go through loss every day. And, and we, we like to focus on the loss, you know, of loved ones. That's the big loss, you know. Uh, you know, somebody close to us dies, and certainly that hurts, and it's very painful, and it's a very real loss. But I want to suggest that most of the time, the church gives adequate time for a grieving season for death. You know, we're pretty good about that. We understand that when somebody loses a loved one, it's going to take a season of grieving, and we allow for that. We are less good at allowing time for grieving the betrayal of a friendship, the loss of a dream, uh, the end of a hope. We, we are less good at allowing, um, you know, grieving the end of a good season so that we can fully embrace the next season. And, and my argument here is that I believe that Jesus taught us to grieve. And, and he did it in a number of ways, but to define it, I believe to grieve or to mourn means to express sorrow. It means you get what's on the inside out to the surface, okay? Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who get what's on the inside out to the surface, for they will be comforted, okay? So I think what, what Jesus is saying here, and let me push even in further, is that when we get what's on the inside the loss, the pain, the disappointment, the hurt, when we get it to the surface in a healthy way, there is a divine comfort that comes in the midst of that. Now, immediately, some of you men, you're looking at this to express sorrow, and you're saying, so Ron, are you saying I have to cry? Tears. And if you're asking that, you probably could use a good cry, okay? I mean, men, men don't do that. I mean, ladies, I think you have an advantage over us because, you know, one woman can look at another and say, I just need to go have a good cry. And the other one goes, I think I'll go with you. I mean, you know, <laughs> men don't do that. When the Patriots lose, <laughs> some of us are happy. <laughs> but when, when your, your favorite football team loses, one man never says to another, I just need to go have a good cry. We, it just, it, I mean, we might think it, we don't do it, or we don't say it, okay? And, and I'll be honest, I think, men, we're not as good at this and, and I'm, I'm stereotyping, I know that, but it, it seems to me that women have a better uh, handle on getting what's on the inside out than men do. Men, we're taught to rub dirt in it, you know, move on. And, and I learned this when Wanda and I were on our 10th anniversary trip. Okay, now we've been married 32 years, so this is a long time ago, and we were living in Northern California. We went up to a bed and breakfast near Mount Shasta, it was a beautiful weekend, and uh, on Saturday morning, I took her on a hot air balloon ride over Mount Shasta. You know, there were flowers waiting. I mean, I was, I was hitting all points, guys. I was nailing it. It was awesome. So we had this great weekend. Well, we're driving back on Sunday afternoon from this great weekend, and she pulls out this cassette tape, 
And she says, honey, could we listen to this marriage counselor on our way home? I'm thinking, how much more do I have to do to prove I am the perfect man, you know? You know, I mean, I was, okay, yeah, sure. That's how I had hoped the weekend would end. With the cassette tape of a marriage counselor. So she plugs this guy in, and he's talking about how men are fixers. They like to fix things, including our wives. And when our wife comes to us and she's expressing sorrow over something, we immediately go into fix-it mode. And, of course, we're fi- you know, Tim the Toolman Taylor. You know, we're fixers, okay? And, um, but I'm listening to this, and I look over, and Wanda's crying. And I go, I do that, don't I? She shakes her head. And this guy goes on, and he says, Men, when your wife comes to you with a problem with one of the kids, she doesn't want you to fix it. She wants you to hear her heart, because what's going on in her heart is she's wondering, am I a good mother? Can I do this? Have I failed? You know, and so men, instead of saying, oh, I'll make an appointment, I'll do this, I'll sit Kelly down, I'll talk to her, your, your wife wants you to ask the right questions to draw out her heart. And, and I look over and Wanda's shaking her head, and he says, and men, listen to your wife. Ask her how it makes her feel. Ask her what's going on. You know, and then listen and make the appropriate noises at the appropriate times. Like, mm, um. And then he says, and don't fake it or she will know. And I'm like, how do you not fake it? You know, I mean, we don't know how to do this, okay? And uh, so he's, he's going on, and, and he says, and men, if you will do this and let your wife get what's on the inside out to the surface, he was talking about grieving. Um, at the end of 30 minutes, and I'm like, 30 minutes? That's a long time, okay? He said, at the end of 30 minutes, your wife will look at you, and she'll say, thank you, honey, I feel so much better. And you won't have fixed a thing. Blessed are those who grieve. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Oh, and then he did add this. He said, and men, if you will learn to do this regularly, I guarantee you will get lucky more often. (laughs) And I looked at Juan, and she went. (laughs) And I rewound the tape and listened again, okay? All right, now, so my, my point is here, folks, that I'm not sure we as Christians are good at grieving. We bury it. We move on. We try to deny it. We quote scripture verses at it. You know, I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. But the fruit of the old, the corrupt fruit, is all over the place because we haven't dealt with it well. So I want to I hit five questions uh, about grief, five important questions. The first one is this, what brings about the need for grieving? And there's a one-word answer, and it's the word loss. Loss. Now, again, it's not necessarily the loss of a loved one. Um, this category of loss is much bigger. Here's a quote from Henry Nouwen that kind of summarizes it. He says, if there's any word that summarizes well our pain, it is the word loss. We have lost so much, sometimes it seems as if life is just one long series of losses. When we were born, we lost the safety of the womb. When we went to school, we lost the security of our family life. When we got our first job, we lost the freedom of our youth. When we got married or ordained, we lost the joy of many options. Pause there for a minute, okay? Let me explain that one. Um, I had a young man come see me, college student, and he came into my office, and I knew he had gotten engaged to a wonderful girl. And he came in the office, and he looked really sad. And his name was, I think his name was Frank, just about 10 years ago. I said, Frank, what's up? 
And he goes, um, I'm really sad. I go, why? You just got engaged. She's awesome. She's way better than these other girls you dated. And he goes, yeah, well, that's kind of the problem. He said, uh, I know she's the right one logically. I, I know. But I just realized by choosing her, I'm saying no to all the others. Now, right now, the ladies are going, what a jerk. Okay, now, stay with me here for a minute, okay? I said to him in that moment, I got up and I shut my door, and I said, okay, do not share this with your fiancé, okay? Mano to mano here. You're going to talk to me about this. But you're right. You need to grieve the loss of other options. Because if you don't grieve them and let them go, they'll remain options. Now, as hard as it is for someone to hear this, what happens if you don't grieve the loss of options and keep the door open and suddenly that old girlfriend shows up on Facebook five years from now and you haven't shut the door to it? You see, you have to grieve so that you let it go so that you can fully embrace the present, okay? Uh, and so I led him through a grieving exercise where he went through what were the good things about Mary and, and yet... Why did it come to a close? And, and in Jesus' name, I bless her and I release her. And we went through his girlfriends and he released them one by one. I got to tell you, that may be one of the healthiest things I've ever done with a young man. Grieving so that he could fully embrace the woman that God had for him. Um, so when we grew old, we lost our good looks, our old friends or our fame. When we became weak or ill, we lost our physical independence. And when we die, we lose it all. And these losses are part of the ordinary life. But whose life is ordinary? The losses that settle themselves deeply in our hearts and minds are the loss of intimacy through separations, the loss of safety through violence, the loss of innocence through abuse. Pause there a minute. Folks, that's one of the main things when I teach this on a college level. Um, men and women in their 20s, uh, I, I hardly ever meet a young person that does not have to grieve the loss of innocence through abuse. Now, it's not all sexual abuse. Some of it is ex being exposed to sexuality at an early age, and who can avoid that in our media-crazed culture, you know? And, and, but there's a lot of grieving that they have to do. Uh, the loss of home through war, the loss of well-being through hunger, heat, and cold, the loss of children through illness or accidents, the loss of country through political upheaval, the loss of life through earthquakes, floods, plane crashes, bombings, and diseases. Perhaps many of these dark losses are far away from most of us. Maybe they belong to the world of newspapers and television screens, but nobody can escape the agonizing losses that are part of our everyday existence, the loss of our dreams. And the bottom line is this, nobody gets out of life without loss, okay? Now, let me push a little bit further. I think we even need to grieve the end of good seasons, okay? Um, when my oldest daughter, and uh, man, I love her to death. She lives out in Denver now. She's 27. She'll be 28 this year. But when she moved uh, away from home, we took her to Eastern University down in Philly. And she got a full tuition scholarship. It was a great opportunity. I was so excited for her. We took her off to college. This is my first kid. I mean, I'm excited. I wanted her to go to college. I didn't want her to stay home and work at McDonald's. I wanted her to, you know, do this. We set up a room. We prayed for her. And when we drove off that campus, I cried like a baby. For two hours, I'm driving back from Philly, just, wah, and I'd, I'd get it shut off, wah, and then it would hit me again. I'm, I'm losing my daughter, I'm, you know, and I had to grieve it. And, and then two years later, my son comes to me, and he says, Mom, Dad, I, I want to go to college in Florida. 
And I'm thinking, oh, no. 18 hours down, 18 hours back. I'm not grieving that long. Uh, here's what we're doing. We're going to ship your stuff to Florida. We're going to take you to the airport, put you on a plane. I'll grieve one hour back from LaGuardia. That'll be good. Okay? So here's what he says. He goes, no, you know, Dad and Mom, I want that 18-hour drive to process the first 18 years of my life with you guys. Here's what happened. That's his ideal. Here's reality, okay? We leave home at like 3 o'clock in the morning, and we're driving. And my son and my wife sleep the first 12 hours, okay? And so I'm driving through North Carolina listening to country music because that's all you can get in North Carolina, which is okay because it's music to grieve by, right? I lost my truck. I lost my dog. And my wife came home, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, <laughs> so I'm driving through North Carolina, listening to the country music and this song comes on and it's a woman singing and, and here's what she's singing. I need a man to stand beside me, not in front or behind me. And, and this woman's singing about how she's longing for a husband. And now I'm crying because I got three daughters that need a good man. Oh God, give my girls good men, you know, and I'm crying, you know. My wife wakes up while this song is on. She looks at me, I'm sobbing. She hears a woman singing, I need a man to stand beside me. And she goes, you're crying to this song. I go, I am so hormonal right now, okay? I'm just... So, man, it was a grieving trip. But now here's what happened. I grieved... The, the end of a good season, the beginning of a new season, and I let my two oldest kids go. Two things happened as a result. First of all, I didn't become a helicopter parent that was always there, always hanging on. Secondly, I was able to fully embrace the last few high school years of my two youngest kids. See, when you don't grieve, when you don't let go, you end up damaging the previous season and you end up damaging the next season because you can't fully embrace the present. And so loss is part of all of our experience. Second question, uh, what it, why is it necessary? And uh, maybe a better way to put that is, what happens if we don't grieve? All right, Ron, I hear what you're saying. We need to grieve, but what if I don't do it? You know, I just don't have time. Life's too busy. Well, uh, there's two things that'll happen. First of all, if you choose not to grieve your losses, the first thing that we do is we begin to deaden our hearts. Here's what you do. Life hurts. We go through loss. And we begin to think, you know what? Maybe if I don't hope for so much, it won't hurt so much. And so we lower our expectations and we, we dismantle our dreams and we stop living the life we have dreamed of and we settle for what we get. And I'll tell you where I see this. I see this in pastors all the time. When they come through seminary, they're excited. They have a vision for what God's going to do. And, and they're, man, they're on fire. They're ready to set the world on fire for God. Revival. And then they get into church ministry. And I see them after about five years. And they've sat through one too many board meetings. And they have sheep bites all over them. You know, sheep bite, right? You know? And uh, the pain of ministry. And I look in their eyes, and that fire's gone. And they begin to deaden their hearts and they lose their hopes. And so, and it's a result of not grieving and letting go so that the Lord can reignite fresh vision, fresh fire. So deadened hearts is the first thing. Second thing, though, is we begin to compartmentalize our lives. What's compartmentalization? 
Compartmentalization is when you act one way in public, but another way in private. And when you don't grieve well, you may pretend everything's fine, especially if you're a Christian, if you're a pastor, but then we develop a public life and then a private life. And the private life is the world of addictions. Porn addictions, drug addictions, alcohol addictions, anything to numb the pain that we're experiencing. And uh, is it any wonder when we don't grieve well, we have a ton of pain to try to numb. And so the compartmentalization happens a lot. Folks, listen, it's, it's rampant in the church. That's why you see big church pastors crashing and burning all over the place. Because publicly, everything looks fine. But secretly, they're numbing pain with all kinds of other addictions. And so compartmentalization is what happens. Um, Brent Curtis, in his book Sacred Romance, says this. So instead of dealing with the arrows, and when he uses the metaphor arrows, he's talking about losses, disappointments, hurts, wounding. Instead of dealing with the arrows, we silence the longing. We deaden our heart. That seems to be our only hope. So we lose heart. For how many losses can a heart take? Let me answer that question. I think if we embrace biblical grieving, there is no loss the world can throw at us that our God can't heal. But if, if we don't embrace grieving, I think one loss can take us out when we don't deal with it well. Uh, if we deny the wounds or try to minimize them, we, end, we deny a part of our heart and we end up living with a shallow optimism that frequently becomes a demand that the world be better than it is. Pause there for a minute. Here, here's what he's saying. Uh, when you deaden your heart, you become a shallow Christian. And you learn Christian cliches and you pretend life is better than it really is. Because to suggest that there's pain underneath the surface is to betray yourself. And so what you do is you live with this shallow optimism and you walk around going, hey, God is good all the time. God is good. Praise the Lord. How you know? And all those are true statements. But how many of you know you can tell when it's only an inch deep in somebody? And, uh, and so he's saying that if you live that way, uh, you live with this shallow optimism. And I got to tell you, the world can see straight through it. That's why they, they say, Christians, they're so fake. I think it would really help us if we begin to own our losses and be honest about them, and grieve them, and allow the world to see that we are the people that believe Lamentations is inspired by the Holy Spirit. That we are the people that believe that the Garden of Gethsemane was an important moment of grieving so that Jesus could fully embrace the cross, and then ultimately the resurrection. And we are the people that aren't in denial about our own losses. Curtis goes on and he says there's another group of people. Uh, there's some people that just embrace loss, as if it's the final word on life and they fall into despair. And, and, and that's a group of people that, and you know them, where they go through a loss and they never get out the other side. They're just stuck there. And I am not suggesting that. I am suggesting we embrace the grieving process so that we can move through it to freedom, to joy. And, uh, and, and so I believe it is a grieving process that leads us to comfort, that leads us to healing. Um, all right, question number three. Let me move on. Why do we avoid it, okay? If we need to do it, if it's important, if there's healing in it, why do we avoid it? Well, again, a one-word answer. We don't like pain. We don't like pain. Now, here I am telling you on a nice, sunny Saturday, we've been talking about healing, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit, and now I'm telling you that it may be necessary for some of you to revisit the most painful moments of your life. And you're going, I'm not going there. 
And here's why you're not going there. Because the enemy of your soul, what he'll do is he'll say, you can't afford to go there right now. It's too painful. It's too deep. It's too dark. Um, What will you discover if you're honest about what your mom did to you? You can't go there. And I want to tell you something. The enemy will always incite fear in this process. Because what I have found over the years is your fear of what you'll find is always worse than what you find. Now, hear that. Let that sink in. Because your fear of how bad this is going to hurt is always worse on the front end than it is when you're in the midst of it. And why? Because in the midst of it, the Lord begins to set you free. Because the truth is, joy always comes in the morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. And so I'm here telling you that if you want joy, you're going to have to also embrace pain. Uh, Two weeks ago, I was in Omaha, Nebraska, and this girl comes up to me. And and I actually wasn't even speaking on this. I can't remember what I was speaking on. And, And she came to me and she said, Ron, I want my joy back. I want my passion back. I used to have such joy in worship. And I said, um... Tell me about the loss in your, in your life. She looked at me and she goes, no, I don't want to talk about loss. I want joy. I came to you to get prayer for joy. Why would you ask me about loss? I said, because you have a loss that's blocking your joy. And she started to cry. And she said, I broke up with a boyfriend last year. And I said, have you grieved it? She goes, no, because it was the right thing to do. He wasn't a Christian and I did the right thing. I said, but you loved him. Yes, but it wasn't the right thing. You know, he was not a believer. I know I did the right thing. I know you did the right thing. But he had everything you wanted. He was your dream man. And yes, he didn't know the Lord. But your heart was attached to him. And that hurt. And she lost it. She started sobbing. And I said, that's right. Let it out. It's okay. She goes, my Christian friends don't understand. They don't let me be honest. But I miss him every day. I said, you can't fully release him until you've grieved him. And I walked her through grieving. In front of a church, we were off to the side. Next night, I saw her in worship. Her hands were up. There was joy on her face. She said, I feel like I'm free for the first time in a year and a half. Okay, here's why. Um, I want you to imagine this is a continuum of what we feel in terms of pain on this side and joy on this side. And, and when we go through something painful, like a loss, we go, oh, that hurts. I'm not going to feel that. And so we move the wall in of what we're going to feel, and we just kind of shut our emotions down over here. But here's the problem. You can't shut down your emotions selectively. When when you start to shut down the pain, then the wall on this side starts to move in, and, and you don't feel the joy either. And so what happens is you keep shutting down your emotions, and again, you can't shut them down on just one side, and it's not long until you're not hearing the low notes, but you're not hearing the high notes, and to use a musical term, you begin to live a monotone existence where you're not feeling pain, but guess what? There's no passion either. You see, a life without pain is a life without fullness, and and both are necessary. And here's the good news. When you tear down that wall and say, I'm going to go to the place of my pain, I'm going to grieve that loss, I'm going to deal with it honestly, God begins to tear down the joy blockages too. And, and joy begins to get released as well. And so there's a, a gift hidden, even in the pain. Question number four. With what options does our past pain leave us? Okay? What options does our past pain leave us? All right, now, before I go to these, um, most of you are familiar with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, The Stages of Grief. 
she, some of her research has been debunked because she only studied people with terminal illness, but I think there's some truth to it that when we go through loss, we go through stages, you know, anger, denial, you know, rationalization. I think, you know, I'm not talking about stages. I'm talking about what are the options that people choose to live in permanently when it comes to loss. So let me suggest a few. First of all, there are some people that live forever in hiding or denial. Uh, I'm going to pretend it didn't happen. We're not going to talk about it. I'll tell you what, families do this all the time. Families go through painful seasons, and they just stop talking about it. We don't talk about what your brother did. You know, it's not mentioned. Nobody brings it up at family reunions. Nobody talks about it, and it becomes this family secret. Here's the problem with hiding or denial. It's like pushing a beach ball underneath the surface of the water. Because when you push a beach ball under the surface of the water, it comes up somewhere. Now, it, it never comes up where you've pushed it down because you keep your hands on top of it, but it comes up in other places. And so you never talk about what happened with your brother. You, the family never talks about what happened with that son. They, they, never, they never bring it up, but it's coming up with physical sicknesses, with issues in relationship, with, with you know, anger, with other things that are going on. And the problem with hiding or denial is it doesn't work. You can't keep it down. And so I, I don't think that's a good option. Second option, rationalization. This is a big one where we say, I've had a good life. You know, I mean, my parents weren't alcoholics. I wasn't, you know, you know beaten. I wasn't abused, blah, blah, blah. I, I, I don't have anything to complain about. There are so many more people that have bigger issues than I do. And you know what? We use that rationalization as an excuse to hide and deny our own issues. Because listen to me, your pain is still your pain. And if you don't deal with your stuff, you won't be able to help people that are dealing with worse stuff. So I I told you, I can't remember when, either this morning or last night, that I go down and I do training for adventures in mission for all these young, you know, 20-somethings, 30-somethings that are going to the nations. They're going to go work with lepers and orphans and, you know, homeless people. And, and they bring me down, and I teach on grieving. And you know why? Because if, if these white suburban kids, most of them are white, if they don't deal with their stuff before they go to minister to the orphans, to the lepers, to the homeless, then they will go trying to fill their own neediness with ministry, and they won't be able to effectively give. Because when you don't deal with your own issues, when you rationalize your stuff away, then you're doing ministry for all the wrong reasons. And so when you deal with your stuff honestly, then you can give. Why? Because God's given to you. And you give out of the overflow of what he's done. So again, rationalization is not a good option. Uh, See, anger and bitterness. Anger and bitterness. This is where you live in a perpetual state of anger. And if you want to experience that, come to New York. I know you don't have road rage in Connecticut, right? Unless you're on 84, coming out of Hartford at the wrong time, okay? But you, have you seen road rage? You know, you, all I did was not put my turn signal on. What's the big deal? You know, okay? I'm, I'm the guy, I have a gift of inciting road rage, okay? Well, it's out of proportion. What is it? When your anger is out of proportion to the event that has occurred, it's a sign that that anger is coming from somewhere else. Please hear this. Anger is always a secondary emotion. Okay, It's always secondary, never primary. 
And, and so when you see an angry person, and you know people that just have an edge of anger, they're just waiting for an opportunity to erupt. It's rooted in something deeper. Where's the hurt? Where's the disappointment? Where's the pain? What's going on there? And, um, and obviously, by the way, anger is uh, the number one painkiller in America. It's readily available. And, um, and, and, and it makes you feel like you're not a victim. It makes you feel like you're in control. The problem is it just damages everybody around you. Okay? Um, addictions, another option. Uh, people just kind of choose into um, whatever it is, alcoholism, um, you know, drug addiction. Prescription drug addiction is huge, even in the church. Um, and then we've got our Christian addictions, you know, religious addictions, workaholism. Um, exercise addiction. I've never had that one. If, if any of you are struggling with exercise addiction, come pray for me first, then we'll get you free. Um, you know. <laughs> Anyhow, I mean, whatever, whatever your painkiller, choose it. It's, there's a variety of things that we, that we jump into. And again, ask yourself, uh, am I doing this to cover a loss that I haven't processed well? Okay? And so I think our only option is biblical grief and mourning. Biblical grief and mourning. Here's a quote from Henry Nouwen. He says, yes, we must mourn our losses. We cannot talk or act them away, but we can shed tears over them and allow ourselves to grieve deeply. And then look at this sentence. To grieve is to allow our losses to tear apart feelings of security and safety and lead us to the painful truth of our brokenness. What? Why would I want to tear apart my feelings of security and safety? Here's why. Your feelings of security and safety are an illusion. You cannot keep yourself safe. You cannot keep yourself secure. When you own your losses and the disappointment and the pain, you are in essence allowing that to tear apart your facade, the illusion that you can keep yourself safe, that you can keep yourself secure, and it drives you in your brokenness to Jesus, and you say, Jesus, my only hope is you. And so, so what Nowen is saying is, for true spiritual formation to happen in your life, you must embrace grieving. You must embrace it. Uh, he says this, in the midst of all this pain, there is a strange and very surprising voice of the one who says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's the unexpected news. There is a blessing hidden in our grief. Not those who comfort are blessed, but those who mourn. Somehow in the midst of our tears, a gift is hidden. Somehow in the midst of our mourning, the first steps of the dance takes place. Somehow the cries that well up from our losses belong to our songs of gratitude. All right, one last question. What are the benefits of biblical grieving? Now, before I give you this, I'm just going to give you a bullet list here for those of you that aren't convinced yet. These are, these are some of the benefits. Um, when I teach this in spiritual formation uh, or in the spiritual formation class that I teach in the, the Master of Arts program, um, I encourage the students to do a grief journal where they highlight the significant losses from their past life. And I tell them, I said, listen, this is chapter one. It's chapter one. You cannot do a grief journal to cover everything that you've suffered. I mean, you just can't. So it's your first chapter. And I said, and here's the thing. Even if you can cover in six to seven pages all the losses of your first, you know, 25 years, guess what? You're going to have losses next week and next week. And, and so what I would encourage you, and, and hear me, is that the discipline of grieving needs to be a regular spiritual discipline in your life. Uh, I had a young lady in my class once. She came to me. Her name is Colleen. 
beautiful girl, flaming red hair, uh, just really pretty girl from Long Island. And she came to me and she said, uh, Dr. Walborn, I, I really don't need to do a grief journal. I'm like, yeah, right. She goes, no, no, I don't. And I said, why? Because I've heard people, no, I, I have no losses. Nothing's ever bad has ever happened to me. I have people that are in denial like that. And she goes, no, when I was 12, my mom taught me to journal and bring my losses to Jesus every night. And so since I was 12 years of age, every night before I go to bed, I journal to Jesus the disappointments, the hurt, and the pain that's taken place. And I can show you, at this point, it was 10 years of journals that I have. Listen, she was one of the healthiest girls I'd ever met. I tried to get her to date my son. <laughs> Literally, I set them up on a date. I'm like, I want her as my daughter-in-law. Bryce, go out with her. She's healthy. She'll be a great wife. Um, and he didn't end up with her. But I like the girl he did get. So but anyhow, but uh, she was incredibly healthy. Why? Because she had done this grieving as a regular spiritual discipline. Now, most of us have to go back and start over. Some of us have 60 years of stuff to work through. Okay? So here are the benefits. Number one, it helps you live proactively instead of reactively. Okay? When you don't deal, let's, let's talk about kids here for a minute. Um, my oldest daughter was my toughest one. I mean, I love her to death, but I mean, strong-willed, stubborn, and I did not grieve well some of the things that she did, some of the things I did. And I found myself with my son, who was two years younger than her, disciplining him reactively because of my daughter's issues. One time when he was a teenager, he looked at me and he goes, Dad, I'm not Kelly. I am very different than her. Please don't treat me the way you treated her. And, and he's right. They are as different as, I mean, how two more different people could come from the same parents, I don't even know. But they're very different. When you don't grieve loss as well, then when you get into a situation, what happened to you begins to affect that current situation. You don't deal with it proactively, but rather reactive, reactively. Secondly, it increases your emotional capacity to handle life and people more fully. Now, I, I just have this image that we have this emotional tank, okay? And it gets filled up with loss, with disappointment, with hurt, with pain. And, and when we get into a crisis, we, we're like, I can't take any more. And the reason we can't take any more is because our tank is filled up. Grieving, in essence, empties the tank, okay? Um, my last teaching today, I'm going to talk about emotional healing, and about how I had to receive healing because of stuff with my mom. When Wanda and I first got married, we would go home to visit my mom, and my mom would say something. And it was mean, and it was, you know, kind of caustic, but I would explode. I would just lose it, and we would end up in a horrible fight. And, and my wife said to me, I don't understand why you overreact to what your mom does. I said, I'll tell you why I overreact, because I got 30 years of this stuff up in, you know, in me. It wasn't 30 yet, okay? And, and I needed to get it taken care of. Now, when I went through inner healing and emotional healing, it emptied, and I grieved it, it emptied my emotional tank. And we would go home, and my mom would still say stupid stuff. You know, she didn't get healing, okay? And she would, you know, poke me in the belly and say, well, you're still fat, aren't you? When are you going to lose weight? Now, in the old days, when I had a reservoir filled, I would lose it. After I got some healing, she would do that, and I would put my arm around her and say, must be in the DNA. 
And I'd poke her back, you know. And then she'd laugh, and I'd laugh. And I'd say, Mom, it does hurt when you say stuff like that. I know. And it would immediately de-escalate the emotion. I wasn't able to do that when my emotional tank was filled. When you grieve, it empties that emotional tank so that you can deal with the present moment, not with a reservoir. Okay? Number three, third benefit, it gives you freedom and permission to risk again and set big goals. Okay? Listen, when you don't grieve, you start to live a safe life. When you don't grieve, you stop taking risks. I got to tell you something. I am 54. I've been through a lot of pain and I've known a lot of victories. But my wife and I were talking and we're saying, what is God's next big adventure for us? If you don't grieve well, you can't dream about taking a big risk and, you know, moving to New Mexico and planting a church. I'm not, I hope I'm not prophesying. Although New Mexico's nice. There's no snow. Um, you know, but I want to I be able to say, God, what's the next big dream? And I don't want my fear, I don't want my failure to have grieved the losses to hinder me. I want to be able to dream again and risk big things. And when you grieve, it allows you to do that. Four, it also keeps your heart soft and gives you empathy for others' losses. Even if you haven't experienced loss in some of the areas where they have, it still makes you much more compassionate when you're in touch with your own loss. Much more compassionate. Number five, it restores your capacity to trust God and people again. In other words, um, when you get hurt, you begin to make inner vows. I'll never trust anybody again. When you feel like God lets you down, you say, God, I'm not going to trust you anymore either. But when you grieve it, you begin to surrender it, and you begin to trust again, and you begin to hope again begin to dream again okay and uh so in conclusion in order to grieve your past you must get in touch with your heart and your past pain okay let me share one story and then i'll give you a a little exercise to do here um most of us have coping mechanisms we develop to protect ourselves and um you know, some of you run from people. You kind of isolate. Uh, some of you maybe that are more like me, uh, you develop humor. In fact, you know, if you look at comedians, comedians have an incredible amount of pain, and they've learned to be funny to protect their hearts. Okay? Uh, in fact, we just lost Robin Williams. Remember Robin Williams? Yeah. I mean, he was one of the most gifted, uh, not just comedians, but what an actor. And I don't know why he didn't win Academy Awards. He was an amazing actor. But over the years, I would watch him and I would say, who is Robin Williams? Who, who is he? Not the characters, you know, not Mork and not, you know, all the amazing characters he's played, but who is he? And so when I found out that he was on like the Late Show or something, I'd tune in. Maybe I'll get to know who he is. But if you saw him, he never let anybody know. He just played one character after another. And you know, you talk about wearing yourself out. And, and so for me, humor is what I would use to hide my pain. And I could tell stories about my childhood, and I've told some of them here. Um, but in the past, I would tell them to hide my pain. Now, I tell them so that I can be in touch with my pain, so that I can help others get in touch with it as well. But 
So I used to tell stories from my childhood that were incredibly painful, but I'd make people laugh with them. And then maybe it wouldn't hurt so much until there was nobody there. So the one story I would tell, I was telling one day to a brand new Christian. This guy's name was Bruce. I had led him to the Lord. He'd only been a Christian like two months. And we were out to lunch, and we were coming back to the church office, and he was going to get in his car and go. And I said, hey, let me tell you this one story. And I told him the story about when I was seven years old, preacher's kid, and I was in Sunday school on a Sunday morning. And, um, and we had this Sunday school teacher whose nickname was, we called him Hitler. I know it's horrible. But this guy was, he was like a dictator, and so all the kids called him Hitler. And, uh, and my goal every Sunday school class was to get one of my friends in trouble. Okay, so, so in Sunday school this one day, this was in, uh, was this in Punxsy? No, this was in Meadville. Sorry, it, wasn't, it was in Meadville. So in Sunday school one day, we were sitting around this table, and we got I Love Jesus buttons that day to put on the lapels of our suit jackets, okay? Well, while no one was looking, I took my I Love Jesus button off underneath the table, and I put it on my crotch, okay? And, and I jabbed my friend next to me, and I showed him, and he lost it. And Hitler got him, okay? He got put in the corner. He got in trouble, you know? And I'm sitting there just kind of, you know, I, finally it wasn't me in trouble. I got him in trouble. So I'm telling my friend Bruce this, and Bruce is laughing. And I said, I said, but then the bell rang to end Sunday school. And I forgot I had put in an I Love Jesus button on my crotch, okay? And up into the foyer of the church, I walked with hundreds of people coming in, okay? Uh, you know, and, and my mother, who I called Little Napoleon, I, I guess I had a thing for naming people dictators, okay? My mom was like four foot eleven. And she saw me from across the foyer of the church, and she went into manifestation, you know. And I had forgotten. I, I didn't realize, you know, I had an I Love Jesus button on my crotch. And, and so I, I'm like, what? And as I got close to her, she just about castrated me, ripping this thing off, you know. And, and again, like you, my friend Bruce is laughing, you know. And then my mom grabbed me by the neck and she laid into me. What is wrong with you? I can't believe you. What are people going to say? Blah, blah. And, and as soon as I did that, Bruce's face changed instantly. And he got this real sad expression. And I said, what's wrong? He goes, that's not funny. I go, what do you mean it's not funny? I was seven and I, had a, I, I love Jesus button on my cross. He goes, no, that's funny. But what your mom did to you, did she treat you that way all the time? Again, this guy's a brand new Christian. He wasn't a counselor. He wasn't, you know, he didn't know anything, you know. And, and I go, well, yeah, what was she supposed to do? And he said, well, you think about it a minute. What would you do to your son if he came walking into the foyer of the church with an I love Jesus button on his crotch? And all of a sudden, I had this vision of my son, who would have been about seven at the time this happened. And my son, he enters every room teeth first. He's just the happiest kid. He, we call him the joy boy. And, uh, and so I had this vision of him coming into the foyer of the church with an I love Jesus button on his crotch. And, and my son always tells me, Dad, please tell people I never did this. This only happened in your sick mind. <laughs> so, so I have this vision, and I see Bryce, and I go, Bryce, come here. And Bryce comes bebopping over. Yeah, Dad, what's up? And I put my arm around him, and I go, do you know you have an I love Jesus button on your crotch? And he goes, oh, you know. And he explains to me what happened, and I gently tell him, you know, okay, here's what's appropriate. Here's what's inappropriate, bud. I love you. He goes, yeah, I love you too, Dad. Sorry. It's okay, buddy. And I slap on the button. He takes off. Well, I have that vision. 
And all of a sudden it hits me. This is a window into how my mom disciplined me. It wasn't for my own good. It wasn't for my own development. It wasn't for my own correction. It was punitive. It was shame-based. And her concern was always, what will people think? That preacher's kid thing. And we're standing there with this guy, Bruce, this brand new Christian, and it hits me. And I start to cry. I mean, not cry, sob. I mean, I'm 31 years old. I'm the pastor of this church. I'm discipling him. And I start to cry. And he goes, yep, there it is. I go, what? He goes, those tears are long overdue. And he goes, why don't we go into your office? I go, okay. So he helps me into my office. He goes, have a seat on the couch. Okay. He takes my leather chair. And I just start sobbing. And he didn't know what to pray. So he prayed more, Lord. Just more. And after about 10 minutes, I start to dry my eyes. And he goes, no, you're not done yet. More, Lord. Do you know that I sat there. He did not fix me. He didn't know anything. He didn't know how to fix me. It was a good thing. It was a God thing. You know what he did? He cried with me. And for 40 minutes, I sat and I got what was on the inside out to the surface. And at the end of 40 minutes, I just looked at him and I said, wow, I feel free. I feel like the Lord's setting me free. Little did I know that was the first installment. There's more to come. I'll share more later. So here's why I share that story. I think every single one of us have tears that are long overdue. Some of you already started. It's okay. Some of you, it may not be tears. Some of it, you just may need to write some stuff. So let me give you a little exercise. And we're going to take some time to do this. Um, Here's what I want to suggest. Again, remember, this is best done as a regular spiritual discipline, not just a one-time deal. Uh, I want to suggest that maybe on a weekly basis as part of your Sabbath that you do a grief journal. Um, and, And just talk about the pain, the loss, the disappointment from the week, okay? Um, but when you start, you might want to just begin with a bullet list of your losses. Just sit down there and just say, Jesus, what are the things in my life, chronologically, maybe currently, that are the biggest hurt, the biggest disappointment? It might be sons and daughters. It might be a marriage. It might be a ministry that you thought was going to pan out. It might be, I, my wife sat yesterday with a, a woman uh, that was on staff at a church and painful, painful stuff uh, that required her to leave the church and deep, deep pain and she was grieving. And, and so either start chronologically or wherever the most pain arises and don't stop when it starts to get painful because that's usually a sign you're on the right track. You see, where there's, where there's pain, it's a sign there's infection underneath the scalp. Okay? And, and especially some of you the Lord's going to bring up something and you're going to say, no, 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 I already grieved that. I already processed it. But it's kind of like an onion. When you peel an onion, you know how you cry, the tears come? But after you've peeled off that first layer, if you let it sit for a few days, you can put that right next to your eye and you don't cry unless somebody takes the next layer. So sometimes the Lord takes you back to a loss that you think you've dealt with and he goes, no, I want to go deeper. And it's time for you to go deeper with this. And then... The key is on this, guys, find a safe person to help you process. Somebody that will listen. Listen to me, you don't need a counselor for this. I'm not anti-counselor. I think there's a a place for counselors. You know, I value counselors. But I think the body of Christ can do this for one another. Because all you have to do is listen 
and be safe and don't fix and weep with those who weep and, and just, just be there. And, and, in, and don't, don't pat them. You know, don't rub their back and say, it's okay. It's, it's not okay. Don't try to make it okay. Just let them be real. And so I, I tell my students, I just gave this lecture on Wednesday night to a group of college students. And I said, all right, you're going to do a grief journal. Do not censor it. Do not censor it. Do not push down stuff. I, I, I give you permission to use language your mother never let you use. And one guy goes, yeah, but you're the dean. I go, yep, and I've heard it all. And you're not going to get thrown out of seminary. You're not going to get thrown out of college. In fact, I want you to be honest. I want you to be real. I want you to write from your heart, from your gut, and I want you to go for it. And, uh, and, and we need to be safe. Well, how do I find a safe person? Here's the best way. Be a safe person. You'll be amazed how quickly you find other safe people. If you be a safe person for other people. All right. So here's what I want to do. Um, this is painful, guys. You're like, wow, I didn't sign up for this. But if you go for it, I want to tell you something. There's joy on the other side. So it's, it's 2.40. So what I want you to do is I don't want you to jump to the break right now. I want you to take about 10 to 12 minutes. Some of you may need to get alone. If you need to go to another place, you can. And I want you to take about 15 minutes, and then we'll take a break. And, um, but don't go to the break yet, unless you're going to wet your pants. You can go if you have to, okay? But go quietly. And then, um, and then I'll release you in about 15 minutes. But I want you to begin to jot some things down. Jot some things down. So, Spirit of the living God, you're here. We talked this morning about the filling of the Holy Spirit and I shared the story about how I wasn't ready, how there was a blockage, and I, I don't know exactly what that blockage was, but I believe in some cases there are levels of fullness of the Holy Spirit that will be unlocked for my friends if they get honest about their loss and disappointment. Some of them need to grieve church wounds. Some of them need to grieve parental wounds. Father... Um, I set them free right now from the distortion of the command, honor your father and mother. Folks, listen. It is not honoring to your father and mother to bury what they did to you. Because the truth is, you don't really honor them with your heart. The most honoring thing you can do for your father and mother is be honest about how they hurt you, how they disappointed you, so that you can get free and truly love them and honor them on the other side. And so I give you freedom to be honest. And some of you parents need to be honest about the wounds that you suffered at the hands of your children and grieve it and let them go so that you can love them. Either stay where you're at or move to where you're comfortable, but I want you to take about the next 10 to 12 minutes. It's just a start to begin to jot some things down. Let the Holy Spirit lead you and then I'll, I'll dismiss you in about 12 minutes.